If you're an educator, a leader in schools, or in districts at any level, this is a must listen. Anthony Muhammad and Lewis Cruz brought so much practical and powerful advice that it was actually hard for me to get Jeff to stop talking with them. These authors are not just researchers, they're practitioners who have been on the front lines. They get it. Enjoy. Ladies, gentlemen, educators, leaders, how are you? Welcome to Leader Chats. If you are a member of the Leadership Circle, you have the option, the opportunity to be watching this when we uh, post it, as well as watch the video. If you are hearing this via a podcast, uh, which is publicly available on a, on a delayed uh, posting for our members, we welcome you to this discussion. Today will be a good one, and let me tell you why. As some of you know, or you may remember me saying over and over and over, we don't book our guests for Leader Chat a year out. We actually try to really focus on what is relevant for right now. So while that is sometimes difficult to schedule, I believe that we should constantly be organically looking for content that is relevant to leaders based upon the challenge or the opportunity of the day. And as you know, Times and change is moving fast. So sometimes that is difficult, but we just really believe that is critical. These two guests that will be joining me here in a minute um, come from one of our members. One of our members on the West Coast, a superintendent, reached out to me and said, there is a book that I love with two incredible authors. You need to look into it. So when one of our members tells us that, we listen and we pay attention. And so we started digging. After digging, we started, um, I don't know, pestering is probably the best word, as we do very well to find the right guests for the leader chat. And I'm excited for this discussion. So today we are going to be discussing what we are calling Time for Change. And so there is this really, really good book that I just finished up recently called Time for Change. And I'm going to be introducing here the authors. I'm going to start with their bios in a minute. We will bring them to the screens and we will dive into the discussion. So once again, Time for Change by Anthony Muhammad and Luis Cruz. So Anthony Muhammad is a best-selling author and international thought leader. He currently serves as the CEO of New Frontier 21 Consulting, a company dedicated to providing cutting-edge professional development to schools all over the world. He served as a practitioner for nearly 20 years. Dr. Muhammad served as a middle school teacher, assistant principal, middle school principal, and high school principal. His 10 years of practitioner has earned him several awards as both a teacher and a principal. Luis F. Cruz is a former teacher and administrator who served students at the elementary, middle, and high school levels. As a team effort, he and his staff achieved high levels of learning for students via a focus on redesigning an educational system the team believed was misaligned to effectively serve the students they serve. Dr. Cruz is a first-generation American with roots from Ecuador. He is a proud former English teacher and today is a sought-after speaker and consultant serving fellow educators throughout the United States. Dr. Cruz is also a best-selling author currently working on three additional books that will be released later this year. This topic, why it's so interesting to me, is there's a heavy focus on the importance of collaborative systems, PLCs, etc. That was my dissertation many, many years ago. I'm not going to get into that because that'll make me feel bad about myself. So without further ado, let me please introduce Anthony and Luis to the screen. Gentlemen, 
Good to see you. Thank you so much for joining from different parts of the country. Anthony, Michigan, and Luis, you're California, but you're currently in Nevada, correct? That's right. Reno, Nevada, visiting beautiful grandkids. So there you go. Okay, so how about this? We'll have, well, listen, we're going to interrupt each other throughout the, you know, the, the period of time, and that's fine. But for now, Anthony, I read your bio. Uh, I just gave this much. There was much, much more because, of course, I've been sleuthing you online, getting ready for this conversation. But what are our, our listeners and our observers of this show? What did I miss in your bio? What would be important to mention? Maybe even just list your kind of motivation or why. Help us get to know you a little bit better. Well, um, I think what's important to note is kind of my upbringing and my motivation to become an educator. And everything that's happened since then is just an outlet or platform to engage people in that. I grew up in Flint, Michigan, who many people know uh, was a Rust Belt industrial powerhouse at one point, uh, who became a victim of deindustrialization, like many uh, cities in the Midwest. Uh, growing up in a system that had a factory model and a factory mentality, uh, we didn't receive a 21st century type education. And going into college as an athlete, not really knowing what I wanted to do with my life, um, education became, it emerged because as factories closed, I started to see the direct impact that deindustrialization and a lack of economic opportunities had on friends and family who didn't get the chance to pursue post-secondary education. So education became my outlet for my activism. Uh, middle school teacher for eight years, two years as a middle school assistant principal, and then nine years as, an, as a middle school principal, uh, which led me to become a, a student and um, a disciple of the late Dr. Rick DeFore and engaging as a practitioner and later a consultant and an author in PLC, um, which also led me to most of my work in the area of building uh, a culture of change uh, so we can actually take advantage of those. So everything in my bio started with a sincere desire to see kids who the system left behind, uh, kind of in the spirit of Horace Mann, wanting to see education as an outlet of social prosperity and development. So I never dreamed I'd be on a podcast like this. I never dreamed I'd get a chance to co-author a book with my colleague and friend, Dr. Cruz. Um, I'm just tired of seeing kids sold short. So everything in my bio comes from that. Well, appreciate it. And um, I think when someone can, I think it's uh, sometimes an art to be able to describe your why in a way that you know demonstrates the the nobility of the work as an educator so well said i appreciate it, anthony how about how about you louise well i grew up in the part of los angeles called the pico union area often referred to as the ellis island of the west coast my parents are immigrants <laughs> from ecuador and um growing up in pico union was a fascinating adventure for me i loved being part of that community Going to school, though, I entered the school as what we call today an English language learner, and over time realized that the fact that I was learning a new language and was able to still embrace my identity and my original language, it being Spanish, allowed me to walk out of school with what I call a superpower that is very, very beneficial to me today. Um, unfortunately, though, kind of like Anthony, I noticed that 
I had friends in my community that as we grew older were not benefiting from the education I was receiving both at school and at home. I often say that my mom, while she is not a college graduate, had a PhD in domestic engineering. And so my brother and I, as much as we were surrounded by elements that are often found in urban settings that aren't necessarily uh, the best path in life, uh, kept us from getting in trouble. But as I grew older and proceeded to um, um, become a teacher eventually, that same drive to discover why the energy I was putting forth was still not producing the kind of outcome I wanted for all my kids really sort of led me in a direction whereby when I became an administrator, I wanted to figure out more so how I can impact more students in a way that I describe today as permission to be ethically greedy. And that is ensuring that every single child that is present in our building finds a path toward prosperity and happiness in the same manner that I've been able to do. And so that continues to drive me today. And so my area of, of passion is redesigning school systems so that kids that the system was not intended for are able to um, benefit from our efforts, our collective efforts. I often say that when people try to use me as an example of someone who made it, I often say that I'm a human outlier. I'm one of many that did not make it. And um, I want to really sort of figure out with amazing thought leaders and mentors like Anthony, how we can leave a legacy of having created a system that benefits all students, not just some. Well, um, now I feel intimidated to talk to the two of you. So I, I appreciate it. And let's let's kind of start with um, what I think is the what is clearly the theme of this book, as well as um, your work, as you've described it as leaders, and this focus on change. And I'll, I'll tell you that there, there's not there's not there's not been a leader chat that we've had over the last year and a half that has not had some connection to the need for change. It just it just hasn't. We, we, um, I actually still think that we're having a hard time truly diving into the concept of change. Everyone says we need it. Um, there's a huge fight, which is sometimes pulling us back to a traditional environment, even post COVID, which is almost fascinating to me that that would be the concept if we could go back to how we it once was. People are searching for a level of normal, and we also know that normal is not serving many of our students throughout this country. We are resource heavy, and yet we have this incredibly hard time, either whether it's be the gumption or the courage or it has the politics that's keeping us from change, but we are having a hard time doing it. And um, this really, this book really recognizes the need for that. In fact, I will prove to you over time that I've read more than just the first three sentences, but I love the first three sentences, so I'm going to read them because you, it'll be very clear why they're important to me because it really focuses on leadership. And I would love to hear what you both think about why you feel so strongly that it's a leader's job to push and create the change needed, or at least the change that our kids deserve. So this is what it says. The most vital assets of any organization are the human resources, and the leader is responsible for managing these resources. The task of cultivating, organizing, and motivating people to improve an organization's productivity holds such importance, especially for school leaders who seek improvement to ensure that students grow, develop, and reach their maximum potential 
the key to a community's prosperity, leading school improvement is serious business indeed. So let's just have you guys expand for me. I don't care who goes first. The why, why is this f such a focus on leadership? And there's so much rich content relative to leaders and their need to change. I'll take the first um, stab at that. Um, I, I consider myself a student of history. And uh, one of the most important uh, reports uh, released was a Wallace Foundation study on uh, school leadership. And they outline in that study that the, 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 the idea of school leadership has evolved over centuries. And in the original school idea, there wasn't a such thing as a particular school leader. There was usually a person in charge who was usually the most senior teacher, referred to her typically as the lead teacher. And then that became known as the principal teacher. As the organization started to evolve, it became necessary for that principal teacher to leave the classroom to manage and lead the school full time, thus for taking the teacher off of the title and that person be, being called the, the principal. Then it evolved where the principal needed some support and the assistant principalship evolved. Then schools became systems and then superintendents, associate superintendents became necessary to manage an entire system of schools where the original leadership was solely in the hands of, of teachers. So I wanted leaders to recognize that our position or our place in schools, schools weren't built to give principals and superintendents somebody to lead. As the school process evolved, the need for leaders emerged as the system evolved, grew, and expanded. So our only purpose was to support the original intent, which was effective instruction, student learning, growth, development that would lead to individual liberty, uh, social advancement, economic advancement. Horace Mann even had a vision of the reduction of crime through schooling. So teachers aren't in place to serve leaders. Leaders were created those positions to serve teaching and learning. So the nucleus of the school process is the classroom. And the leader's purpose is to act to, to impact that classroom and a network of classrooms so that more kids learn more at a deeper level more often. And I wanted in that opening paragraph for leaders to recognize that your position as a servant is built right into the history and DNA of the American public school experiment. Um, and that your proficiency and your, your justification is based upon your ability to positively impact what happens with teachers and students and the teaching and learning process. And I think sometimes we get that mixed. So that was the intent of that opening paragraph. How about you, yeah. Liz? You know, about a month into my assistant principalship at the elementary level, I came to this amazing conclusion that the hardest part about changing our school was not going to be the kids, that it was going to be the adults. And these were not adults that didn't love our kids and weren't working hard. These were adults that had a really tough time 
with changes that we had to make in order for more of our kids to learn. And so this, this, this insight led me to really sort of dig into what were we going to need to do as leaders in the school, my, my, my principal and I, to formulate a culture whereby kids would actually be learning. Now, there's a noble idea, right? I, I realized very quickly that if I didn't learn how to lead adults and how to not just inspire adults, but lead adults to want to change certain behaviors that were not in line with what was best for our students, if that outcome, desired outcome was learning, that I was going to have to really, really sort of study the complexity of what human beings are like and what gets them to change and what gets them to want to do different so that our outcomes could be different, right? So um, introduced to a book called Transforming School Culture, one of Dr. Mohammed's um, gems, if I would say, that really sort of explained to me that human beings are very complex. And even though we had people who had chosen a very noble profession to help kids, that getting those adults to collectively want to change was not something I was trained for. My administrative program did not train me to deal with the complexities of human beings present at our school, mainly adults. What it prepared me for was to effectively manage my school. And so I come to realize that there's a big distinction between managing a school and leading a school, specifically leading adults who are very complex and who have been conditioned to believe that maybe the way they experience school is the way these kids would need to experience school. And so that insight and my introduction to um, an older brother that I never had, Dr. Muhammad, really sort of led me into this work of trying to figure out how I was going to complement the management because we need to know how to manage our schools. No one is, uh, is, is, is uh, you know, arguing that point. But I had to learn while on the job how I was going to lead very complex human beings who meant well, but didn't have the insight and the motivation to want to change a system that today I described was never designed for the community that I served. Low-income kids, mostly of Latino descent, learning English as an, as an additional language, who are not going to have the support at home that I had when I was growing up. How are we going to make sure that these kids also made it? And so that's when I realized that the key was in learning how to lead adults to embrace the changes that were going to be needed moving forward. Luis and, and Anthony, we got a problem. And the problem is we only have so much time. And you just brought up too many things, too many questions in my head. I don't know how we're going to pull this off. But let me just, I want to respond and um, and, and try to lead into another question. And you did address this in, in the book, but I think leaders face this. Uh, Anthony, you mentioned that a, a leader's sole job, based upon this historical context that you provided, is really to serve the educator in the classroom to ensure proper uh, pedagogy, instruction, and support for students, etc. However, what we find, and Luis, you brought this up too, that many of our leaders actually don't necessarily know what they're in for prior to getting the position, right? So we've heard of the Peter Principle going back to the 1970s where they say, 
look, uh, people rise in an organization, sometimes rise to a level of incompetence. Many of our leaders were sometimes former teachers. Most of them were. They are there based upon what they assumed was their job, which Anthony described. In the meantime, they get to a, ver a seat that is very complex, specific to what the true role is, because it's not just serving teachers. There's community and kids, and of course, the baggage adults bring to this dilemma, and then there's the politics and the system, and there's so many factors that you don't, are unaware of before you get there. So, what is your perspective on, one, finding the right leaders as opposed to assuming a great teacher a great teacher will make a great leader and then how does that leader quickly become accustomed to what the role is so one they don't leave they don't burn out but they also can gather enough fuel and knowledge so that their job is not just to uh, support but also to drive change which is sometimes different than what they may consider as serving so I'll uh, I'll take the first crack at this and then pass yeah. it over to Dr. Cruz, who's wrote about uh, a component of this that leaders could really lean on. Part of what was we had introduced in the introduction is that leadership is a skill; it's not a position, and that skill is best distributed across many. The same way that teaching, we want teachers to work in collaborative teams because our group IQ is always greater than individual IQ. So the idea of the hero leader or the hero principle is really outdated, it's antiquated, and it's not really effective. So leadership is a skill. It's not a position. And one of the things that leaders uh, fall into, and we address some of the research on this in the introductory chapter, is you mentioned that Peter principle, the assumption that a person, because they're good at something, has the ability to move up in the organization and to guide other people into that skill. There is a body of literature that I cited in the book that is emerging that it may be the complete opposite, that somebody who was natural at a particular skill may be the least qualified person or people to lead others. Um, and a lot of that uh, recent research comes from athletics. Uh, some of the most naturally gifted athletes fail miserably when they become coaches or general managers. Some of the emerging research has shown that they become less patient because they expect everyone to have the same level of expertise than, as they do. They don't, they're not really good at strategy because what became natural to them, others have to attain strategically and they become less patient. And even some of the researchers describe them as arrogant. Um, Magic Johnson was a terrible coach. He became a terrible general manager. Michael Jordan became a terrible uh, general manager and owner because the assumption that because I'm a great teacher, I ought to lead other people to do that. And I think a part of what Dr. Cruz offered in his, his part of the book was the idea of a guiding coalition, that a leader that's trying to take on this by his or herself is really barking up the wrong tree. The same way a teacher who thinks that she can be everything to every kid by herself is fooling herself because the job is just too, too complex. But a collaborative team that brings together the expertise, the insight, the skill set of many in an organized structure can help all the teachers become successful together 
in a way that one teacher can't do it by his or herself. So I'm going to hand it off to Dr. Cruz because he wrote extensively in his part of the book about the guiding coalition and shared yeah. leadership. Thank you, Anthony. So we have this assumption, I think, in schools, and I had the same assumption that because I was an administrator, I was now going to be the leader of the school. And so one of the things I share with administrators today is that leadership can no longer be synonymous with only administration. So this idea that we are going to create a team of people that must include teachers to guide the changes and the, to guide the other adults in the changes that we're going to need to embrace to become a much more effective organization really was the key in not only my, my work as a practitioner, but in the work I see now play out in schools, right? So the best thing that administrators can do when they arrive at a school site, my wife, for example, is going to be a middle school principal next year. She's spent years being, being an elementary school principal, and now she's going to be a middle school principal. And I said to her, you've got to hit the ground listening, first and foremost. But over time, the best thing that you can do is assemble a team of influential teachers who will lead with you. So that wasn't taught to me in my administrative credential courses. This idea that it would take a team to really deal with the complexities of the human emotion, specifically adult human emotion at our school. Howard Gardner writes a book called Changing Minds. And in that book, he talks about how, in a nutshell, the two ways that you're going to change people's minds to want to embrace the changes needed is you're going to need to show them irrefutable evidence that there's a better way of doing something. So seeing is believing. But positive peer pressure was his second most important characteristic. So if we can assemble a team of influential teachers at our school and then work with them to sort of gauge where our organization is at and what changes are going to need to happen moving forward, now we've identified the entity on campus that is going to be able to move the faculty and staff in a direction that will be most beneficial to um, our students. So the key is not going in, as Anthony talked about, with this sort of, I've arrived, get ready, I'm going to be your leader, your messiah, your follow me and everything will be okay. You're going to have to be a person who comes in and says, I'm going to try really hard not to be the guy or the woman who leads this school. I'm going to assemble me a team of people. Once I get to know who the players are, who the influencers are, then we together are going to become an entity on campus that is going to provide the positive pressure needed to begin to turn the chains of, cha uh, of change that are going to be needed at our school site. And so it begins with that guiding coalition, not just being assembled, but also finding an identity and sharing the identity and that purpose with the faculty and staff. So when I coach guiding coalitions today, as I will be doing on, in mon on Monday in Utah, for example, it's we've assembled a team of people, but now let's create a one sentence purpose statement around why we exist. We're not here to help manage the school. We're here to help lead the school in a direction whereby adult behaviors will become aligned with what our organization needs so that more of our students learn at the levels that we desire. You know, the you, you brought up some, some topics that make me want to um, jump on a soapbox and start talking about um, 
maybe mine and maybe our mutual concern specific to how we prepare leaders. Uh, there is a skill set. There is an art to leading. And I have a lot of questions and concerns relative to our um, higher ed programs that qualify people as leaders uh, so that before you know it, we're interviewing them for a principalship and yet they may be dramatically underprepared as I was when I finished principal school. And as I was even when I finished my, you know, doctor program in educational leadership to become a superintendent. And so, you know, quickly I face experience after experience for which I was not prepared for. And so there is a fake it until you make it, and hopefully you survive, many of them don't. But in the meantime, we often are just not ready and are prepared with those skills, as you mentioned. So, But I'm not gonna jump on that soapbox, and that wasn't even close to getting on top of it. You mentioned Daniel Pink uh, in, uh, several times as it relates to change. Daniel Pink was actually one of our guests at one time. Um, it reminded me of the concept of change and uh, um, this a dear author I always look to, Roland Barthes, where he described culture, right? And he describes culture as the way we do things around here, which is really based upon you know, history and uh, a lot of other factors in the building or in the district or the community. And he also says it's one of the hardest things to change, right? It's the most important, but one of the most difficult and time-consuming things to change is culture. Changing culture was different. I proposed 10 years ago, and it is now. What are you seeing as some of the necessary skill sets our leaders need to lead change now? Not when I was in the seat, because I was in the seat pre-COVID, right? So I, I'm not even a Monday morning quarterback anymore. So what do you think is needed now? Luis, you started touching on it, which is you need to create a coalition. You can't be out there alone. But what are some of those discrete skills our leaders need to know or learn about beforehand or even during to do it well? In our book, the leadership style that we focus in on is transformational leadership, right? And the reason why we believe that transformational leadership is the key is because it's literally a leadership approach that is designed for change, right? John Maxwell reminds us that change is inevitable. Growth is optional. So this is the kind of leadership that's going to be needed if changes are needed at your school and what school doesn't require changes. But as we dove into the literature on transformational leadership, right? we decided to come up with a very easy to understand formula of what we're going to need transformational leadership to encompass. And that is support preceding accountability. We define support as an investment in your faculty and staff. There are specific needs that certain resistant people are asking for and requiring before they can commit to the changes that we need. We're going to need to make sure that we invest as transformational leaders, teachers and administrators working collectively in giving them those needs, the cognitive need to understand the why behind the work, the emotional need to understand the trustworthiness that needs to be established between leaders and followers, and then we need the functional need of learning how to commit to the specific nuances and intricacies of the change that is required at our school. So transformational leaders today are going to begin by ensuring that the faculty and staff has all the support needed to be able to commit to the changes that our organization requires. 
But here's the catch. Support precedes accountability. Accountability we define as a return on that investment. And in my work with schools, and I'm sure Anthony sees this as well, we do a fairly good job of giving support. We're not very good as leaders in demanding a return on our investment. And so this idea that we're going to have to learn how to be tactful in confrontation is one that is going to be required of leaders today. We can't just support for an infinity number of years without seeking a return on that investment. So we're gonna give you everything you need to commit to the change. We understand that that's our first responsibility. But once we're done giving you everything you need, there is nothing unethical about asking for a return on that investment. And that's where I've noticed that we lack sort of the insight needed to be able to get that return on investment. We have to become transformational leaders and invest in both. Support first, but a return on that investment that we've made in the form of support next. And to support what Dr. Cruz has just explained, we've noticed a very strong imbalance between the two. Are the leaders who are totally committed to support, they are humanistic in their approach, they invest resources, they invest time, they change infrastructure, they provide moral and, and psychological support, but then are afraid that after making that investment to demand to see evidence of a return on that investment. Or leaders who do the complete opposite, the kind of the get out of town by sundown John Wayne kind of model. Uh, we purchased this new curriculum. These are the guides. These are the resources. And I will monitor uh, evidence of, of effectiveness. And I'm going to use my bully pulpit to, to uh, forward sanctions if you don't produce results. One is too loose the other is too tight. So we cite the work of both of our mentors, Dr. Rick DeFore, who addressed that effective leadership has a loose, tight balance. It's not all loose, it's not all tight. Another observation I'd like to add uh, in the modern context, uh, leading into COVID and really right after COVID, two things that I'd like to add uh, that have emerged, um, competence and courage. I've noticed uh, a huge uh, disconnect, uh, maybe because of the emergency of the, the necessities created by COVID. Administrators weren't prepared to be uh, epidemiologists and check temperatures and uh, follow CDC guidelines, uh, that the management and the survival of the organization was really critical. 2020, 2022 going into 2023. But there's been, been a step back from the importance of research, professional practice, curriculum, instruction, those important nuances of effective teaching and learning. And the adoption of prefabricated uh, uh, curriculum models that have been sloppily uh, implemented, poorly uh, uh, supported, and poorly managed. Um, and then the other one is courage. Uh, in the face of a lot of the political issues that have come up since 2017, 2018, 2020, um, the policies in Florida, 
around don't say gay, um, the issues of critical race theory and, and other hot button issues, even during COVID, the mask on, mask off debate. Our, our discourse in public life has become less and less civil. And we've seen them in the halls of schools. We've seen them in board of education meetings where people advocate for a particular political uh, ideology and then strongly advocate through being abrasive, through being uh, insulting as their methodology to, to convince an entire institution to adopt uh, certain policies around that ideology. So there are districts that you can't even say the word equity. There are districts where you can't even address the issue of historic systemic racism, uh, dumbing down curriculum, uh, banning books. So you can have all the skill of diplomacy and uh, not, but if you don't have any courage to say that we're here to serve all kids, we're not here to judge their religion, their, their cultural background, their sexual orientation, the sexual orientation of their parents. We're not red or blue, but we are true to that. And I'm, I'm, I'm concerned that we're on the precipice, if we're not careful, of losing the soul of our profession. If there's not a courageous stance to advance the ideal of egalitarianism, that we're here to serve all. Those are two additional pieces I'd like to add to what Dr. Cruz has observed that have emerged critically, uh, really right before COVID, but really enhanced uh, to and through the COVID pandemic. I, I, I want to dive on and, and, and agree, and specific to the courage piece, one thing that's really interesting is that in, in industry right now, leaders are really being pushed and promoted to be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, in school systems, educators, leaders are actually not judged or asked to be vulnerable, they're, they're asked to be competent. And so to have answers for which we don't. And in the meantime, what we, what we see is a lot of leaders doing their best to uh, demonstrate or pretend as though they do have certain things handled for which they don't. And lacking the courage sometimes to say, there are many things we just don't know. Um, and they're just playing to the political powers that be to try to maintain the position. So, and what all of that's doing is creating a status quo, if at best, mm -hmm. if not, maybe Absolutely. backsliding to where we once were. And so Absolutely. it is a dramatic concern. You know, um, Cotter, I forget, John Cotter, maybe in a long time ago, he wrote this book called The Heart of Change and everything I'm mentioning is potentially aging me. But the concept in The Heart of Change was he's a Harvard professor and he was saying that to get people to change, you truly, truly need to touch their emotional aspect in, in order to get them to lean in for that motivation. And what I found fascinating about your book is chapter two and chapter three had these flipped a little bit. And maybe that wasn't intentional, but chapter two, where you really focused on this cognitive investment, which I, I think was just laid out beautifully. And then chapter three, focused more on that emotional aspect. So I'm curious if that was intentional on, let's start with the cognitive, which by the way, is a bit rare. 
relative to other things that are published specific to change. And then we'll also make sure to mention the critical need to attach to people's emotions, which as we know, is really important in the world of education, because that usually is what drives us is this emotional why. Was that intentional to think about that order? Or was that just a matter of, I don't know, what came first in the alphabet? Oh, yeah, yeah. It was it was intentional. Um, those four transformational skills emerge from the transforming school culture study and book um, where I studied 34 schools to try to understand why were some schools cultures heavy healthier than others who happened to be toxic and trying to control for as many factors as possible. And in the interview process, uh, uh, we employed what's called the four whys. And I'm sure some of your viewers are, are really familiar with that. To get to a root cause of an issue, you ask the interviewee why four times to get to the root or the, the cause of what you see at the surface. So as we were doing interviews about some of the troubles that teachers were articulating and why they were not invested in being a part of the change process, as we got down to the fourth why, why aren't why are you so bitter why are you so resistant why are you not engaged the vast majority of the time the reason was i don't understand i don't know why i'm meeting on the team i don't know why we have to pick guaranteed and viable outcomes i don't know why we have to engage in uh, uh, uh web's depth of knowledge to understand rigor in our instruction and in our assessment. So it was a confusion. And that was the most dominant and most prevalent reason in the 34 schools that were studied for why people resisted change. So the reverse of that is that if leaders understood how to make, what we call the, the minds, if there could be a meeting of the minds, why am I why I'm on a team? Why are we changing our approach to science or approach to reading? If there was an intellectual connection, our evidence showed that that was the most frequent reason that teachers gave that they were not connected. Number two was, I get it, but I don't trust you. Dr. Rose, you're a very in intelligent person. Thank you for quoting Cotter. Thank you for quoting Pink. I don't disagree with you intellectually. My disagreement is, is that I get it intellectually. I just don't trust you because you're my fourth principal in five years. This is our fifth district curricular. So it wasn't the intellectual portion. It was a level of emotional security that if I invested in what seemed logical, that we would never see that investment through its entirety. So my apprehension at the second level wasn't the intellect or the evidence, I've made a cognitive investment, but my hesitancy is that I just don't trust people in this system. There's been scandal, there's been lack of ethical behavior, there's been high turnover, there's not a level of reliability. So we found that trust came second to the intellectual, both important, but we found that in that sequence in school, it became more essential to first make a, a meeting of the minds, then create a connection of the heart. Okay, so Luis, I have a question for you about trust. Um, so I, I will tell you, I started um, bending the, you know, the, the, the piece of paper on, on the book when I saw the theme of trust. And it's mentioned 
throughout the book, not just in that section, right? So that's clearly a, a critical aspect of what you described to be really important. So how is it that a leader should think about the need for trust, which very few would disagree with, with the concept of speed? For change, right? I've, we've all heard this concept of it takes X number of years to truly see change, whether it be three to five, etc. In the meantime, and I've interviewed many people and I've been in the seat where I have felt like we don't have three to five years. I'm not going to tell a third grader, bummer, by the time you get out of this elementary school, we will have changed. That's not, it's not appropriate. It's, 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 it's actually just not the right thing to do. So therefore, how do we balance this concept of knowing we need to establish trust, which doesn't happen overnight, to Anthony, to your point, but how do we think about trust and the need for change based upon the urgency I think we're describing and the three of us would agree to needs to happen now? Because by the way, if now is not a right time for change, I don't know what is. Yeah, in each of the schools where I served as a principal that developed that guiding coalition we talked about earlier, the trust factor really came about with two elements in mind, and we write about this in our book, is that we had to find a way of creating that trustworthy relationship with the faculty and staff so that the changes that we were going to promote took hold. Maybe slow at first, but then it would pick up using something called empathy combined with credibility. So you have no idea how many um, teams I work with that have never heard of the effective schools research. And so one of the things that our team did, our guiding coalition did, was first dive into what is out there? What do we have within the context of our profession with regard to the effective schools research that can help our school become better? We build credibility and then we began to share that knowledge with our faculty and staff. And then we practice empathy by listening to our faculty and staff. So we've introduced you to what the research says is needed with regard to a guaranteed and viable curriculum. We have looked at our data as an indication of the assessment that our school needs help. And what we want to do now is we want to take a time, some time to listen to each of our teams around what is it you're going to need to build upon this guaranteed and viable curriculum. So the combination of empathy and credibility, the stronger that became a force at our school and trustworthiness was accepted. In other words, we trust that this team that our principal has assembled, some of my colleagues who are on this team, are going to be guiding us in a way that is going to be very, very beneficial for our school. We see now that it's not just the principal standing in front of the faculty and staff, but it's teachers who have been here and are learning this work, that are promoting this work. We found that that got the change wheels happening in a much more efficient manner than simply showing up and saying, here's what we're going to do, now go ahead and do it. So this idea of listening to your faculty and staff, hey, second grade team, where do you find yourself stuck within the context of this guaranteed and viable curriculum we introduced you to? Hey, eighth grade math teachers, if collaboration, the way we described it, is going to need to happen, how does it happen for you? The more we listened to our faculty and staff and the more we responded to their needs, not with sympathy, oh, you guys are really struggling with this, so don't worry about it, we don't have to do it, but instead, this is what you're saying you need, let's get you what you need. We notice that the, 
the wheels of change began to spin a little quicker and a little bit more efficiently. So that support in the form of tactfully listening to our faculty and staff, hence responding to their needs, created the trust needed so that the wheels of change could pick up speed and we can get the desired outcomes that we were seeking quicker rather than later. And I'd like to add one more gem to what Dr. Cruz shared is one of the things we were careful about in the chapter on trust is that trust cannot be made synonymous with likability. That trust is really a synonym uh, for reliability. Um, trust is more than emotion. Um, I'm not necessarily in love with gravity, but I trust it. Uh, if I step off of my porch, I can pretty much with 100% certainty uh, predict gravity's response. So trust is not necessary. It's not a synonym of how much I'm endeared to you or how uh, uh, affable you find your leader. Is, is your leadership reliable? And Doug Reeves, one of the ways he describes trust, promises made, promises kept. So it's something that you model. And it because I don't have to like you to trust you is that your behavior is reliable and predictable as it relates to your vision and your and, and our purpose as an organization. So when Dr. Cruz mentioned listening to teachers, gauging their needs, it's not necessarily not necessarily endear him to every teacher, but what it will show is that there's a consistent level of behavior that's reliable and aligned with the vision and the purpose that that principal is trying to model or that superintendent, whoever's trying to model. So don't mistake listeners, the fact that your teachers may like you, they may find your personality pleasant with being trusted because you can dislike somebody you trust. There were times my mother, <laughs> I didn't always like her, but I trusted her. There's going to be food on the table that she was going to be consistent in the principles and values that she instilled in us. So, don't mistake likability with trustworthiness. They're, they're distinctly different. Well, as a parent of two kids, I'll remember that. So thank you. Um, so let me, you know, like I said, from the very beginning, from, from the get-go, after you addressed the first question, I said, we're in trouble because I could keep you here all day. Um, in the meantime, Chris, who is our producer, who does an incredible job, I give all the credit for the quality of this show, um, he's about to throw something at me. He's back there waving. I, 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 I got to put a close to this. So let me ask you this. This is our, kind of our famous last question. In the leadership circle, we have a saying that we stole from my pastor, which is, circles are better than rows. The concept is, we like, we believe educators, talking with other educators, leaders, helping other leaders is um, the true, uh, the, the most focused way to create professional development that sticks. However, this is the one thing that we do to provide content. So let's just pretend the three of us are sitting around a table and on the other side or around this circle, circular table are principals, superintendents, assistant superintendents, and the academic as, as well as the operational side of the house, it doesn't matter. What would be your final words of wisdom? Think elevator speech, you would want to leave them with. What would be your final words of advice or wisdom tied to what you write about in Time for Change? What would you tell them? Hmm. 
my message would be let's learn how to not only support but how to engage in tactful confrontation when needed let's learn how to become ethically greedy and provide a sense of ethical greed with regard to wanting more evidence of learning at our school. Let's come to consensus on the fact that it is not okay for kids to be leaving our school and not being able to read. And let's also come to consensus on the fact that we have a whole body of research out there that can help us accomplish and meet the needs of this ethical greed to have more kids, regardless of background socioeconomic status, reach levels of learning that we have yet to see at our school and in our districts. And for that, let's invest in making sure that leadership is no longer synonymous with only administration, but that we develop a cadre of teacher leaders who can help us influence other teachers and other staff members in the work needed to be able to move forward. Let's embrace the fact that this work around becoming a professional learning community is synonymous with creating a more equitable learning environment. And so let's learn what support looks like in the form of what rational people need, but then let's learn how to tactfully confront irrational responses to changes that are needed at our school so that we know exactly the formula needed to be able to create the kind of changes that our organizations were created for and are needed in 2023 and beyond. Irrational change. I like that term. Anthony, uh, uh, br yeah. bring us home. Yes. My elevator speech would be that schools are important and school leadership is important. Uh, Larry Cuban and David Tyak wrote a book called Tinkering Towards Utopia. In that book, there's a statement that stuck with me. And their statement was, the American public school experiment is one of the most important experiments in human history. Uh, before the American public school experiment, the idea of trying to educate every citizen to a high level was completely foreign. Not only did we create a system and a structure and an infrastructure to do that, we've been wildly successful in many, many ways. But there's a long way to go. And that we have a unique opportunity since uh, we're moving beyond uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, a window of, of, of time to make significant change. And that this is the time for change. Teachers should not be working in isolation. They should have more than 30 minutes a week to collaborate. That collaboration should be wholesome. It, they should have time and it should be structured that we have to move beyond the focus on school test scores, which are based upon more of a comparison of, of, of students uh, for community pride and, and, and property values uh, than they are about the actual sincere desire to see students learn. We have to move beyond underpaying teachers and then over demanding their service. We have to give leaders the type of education that they deserve uh, to be able to properly lead schools, not just promote someone because they were a successful gym teacher. And now that person is going to be responsible for leading an entire organization. So we can learn from the past. We can celebrate the past, but learn from the past and create a vision for the future that is so much better than what we saw in 2020 that we can move to new heights of, of effectiveness, but it's gonna take a robust and courageous look at what needs to change 
and what are better ideas moving forward. Because with the national teacher shortage, with the leader shortage, with some of the things that are going on economically and politically, if we don't make a pivot very soon, I'm afraid of what we're going to see in the next 10 to 20 years if we don't take this window of time seriously. Well said. And I, as you gentlemen both know, uh, Luis and Anthony, I, I, I called you. You didn't, you didn't call me. I don't have any sort of stake or partnership or contract with your publisher. Um, I really, really like your perspective and really respect your candor. And um, I will be doing everything I can to, to push Time for Change. I, I, I believe in the concept. I'm really, really worried and concerned about what's in front of us um, based upon our past and what I see currently happening specific to the political landscape. And it is going to take some uh, courage. It's going to take um, even more than that, some very important strategy um, for us as districts and as leaders to make a difference on behalf of kids. And so I think you're leaving a mark and I appreciate it. Um, I think this is incredible content that will our, our leaders really appreciate as well as uh, everyone who listens to us. So thank you very much for your time and your efforts and your noble work trying to serve leaders and kids. Thank you. Thanks for having us. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank Same. you very much, Jeff. Pleasure to be on here. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for for listening. Thank you for engaging with us. I know that uh, th this th this we went long, and that's that's on me. I I could have kept kept going. Um, I really really think this is something for you to pay attention to, not just because of what was said, but just the overall concept. It is time. Um, our students deserve us to change, and that is not going to come um, easily. We cannot get there without demonstrating a great deal of courage, and it will be bumpy. But I would, um, I would state that our, our kids and our country is worth it. Everyone, educators, leaders, be well.